<laughs> we're on. We're on, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad you are joining us today. Uh, we hope you're having a wonderful new year. If you weren't able to join us yesterday, we're back on our regular schedule, mm. back with you in this new year, 2023. You can hardly believe it, but we're glad that you are joining us um, today for our broadcast. Look, I have this nice new uh, presentation that I, <laughs> I figured out, which actually I'll come back to but after I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting so excited to use it. Cool. I'll introduce our guest first. The Reason for Hope is an uh, hour-long broadcast dedicated to your Bible questions. That's right, we are live, and as you send in your questions on our various live platforms, we will endeavor to find the answers for those questions in God's Word, the Bible. So really, any honest question that you have, as long as you know we're finding the answers in the Bible, it's all fair game. As long as they're honest questions of the heart, that's what we're here to do. My name's Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. And with us also, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today, sir? Slowly but surely recovering. Yeah, you've been sick however, over the uh, Christmas and uh, holiday season. Are you feeling better getting there? Yeah, it is the seasoning. Yeah, <laughs> it is the seasoning indeed. How are you, how are you doing, Peter? Doing Peter okay. Martin with us as well. You kind of stayed well, right? Did you? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you get sick and you just don't let on. Cause well, actually, I I, uh, I got sick while we were in the hospital having our oh, child. That's right. So that's I, got, right. I got sick uh, right before we went to the hospital to have our son, and then my wife got sick right after she had our son, Gosh. which is great. So there was no time for that. It wasn't yeah. about uh, that yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, as you know, you know, being a new parent and being sick at the same time is just a great combo. It is. Know? Yeah. It's great for the self. You can't just hit the hay. Yeah. You have to. You got <laughs> responsibilities. Oh, I know. Been there. Been there. Done that. Worn the t-shirt. Staying with baby food and all that kind of stuff too. So, um, anyway, enough of this idle banter. Um, like I say, I have this new presentation for those of us watching and not listening. Let's try this out today. Reason for hope. Like I say, it's a live uh, Bible Q&A session. We're here Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or whatever time it is for you in your various time zones. Of course, we're around the world. You can join us in various ways. Uh, our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship. Uh, Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So if you keep that in mind, while you're trying to find us, you can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. Com, follow the watch live uh, tab right there. It will take you to our live page, uh, which if we're off air, you'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule of, of uh, upcoming live broadcasts. Or if we're live, you will see our faces right there and there'll be a chat function and all that kind of thing. The direct link for that is ccftucson.online.church. But again, you can just follow the link on our CCF uh, website as well. <clears throat> we're on Facebook. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and you'll find us there. Or facebook.com slash ccftucson is the direct link, should you want to type it out. But why would you? Just go to Facebook and search like a normal person. Uh, we have a, a mobile app as well. Keep in, uh, keep in mind Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson again. If you look on your um, app store, whether that's uh, iPhone or what's the other thing that some people use? Uh, Android. Android, thank you. That's what I use. That's what, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lesser people use. Um, or your iPad or you know one of those devices. Look for our app there, the red uh, red box with the, the Calvary Chapel logo there. Or on Roku and Apple TV, should you want to watch us on the big screen as well. Again, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. On YouTube, our channel is called A Reason for Hope. So if you're looking for us on YouTube, that's where you find us. Or again, youtube.com at A Reason for Hope 546. But once again, just type in A Reason for Hope in the search bar. Don't type all that in. Nobody's got time for that. You can follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, who is often with us. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm here on the show. Um, he was the founder of this uh, Reason for Hope broadcast about 20 years ago now. You can follow him on Twitter, Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter 
R, right? That's a letter. Number four, letter H. He posts highlights from the show and kind of commentary on world events and uh, uh, prophecy things and things like that. Very interesting. Follow along with Scott there on Twitter. And last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope, all spelled out at gmail.com. You can email us there anytime, and we also get to those questions too. What do you think, boys? That's okay. Beautiful presentation. It was pretty nice, right? I don't know. The font choice was a little off. (laughs) I can take that, (laughs) but I'm not going to. Um, Well, with that, Peter, would you like to pray for us today before we go any further? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Father, I want to thank you so much that you've allowed us to celebrate the incarnation, to have a good time with family and friends, and to be able to enter into this new year. We're thankful for the things that you've done for us in the past, and we look forward for the things that you have for us starting this year. Uh, we do pray for this this show right now, that it would be something that honors and glorifies your word, that the people listening to it would be blessed as a result, and in your name, amen. Amen. Amen, dude. Well, on Thursdays, you guys have been doing a book recommendation, and it is Thursday today, isn't it? It so did is. You, did you guys have a book you wanted to recommend and share about? Yeah, ironically enough, when this whole series started, I was down for the count, nice and uh, salty as far as social interactions are concerned. And, of course, discussing things, you know, like ancient church fathers and uh, renowned theologians like C.S. Lewis and so forth, uh, I thought I'd take a bit of a more to the heart of the issue turn, not necessarily in theologically rich books, but books that I've found personally meaningful to my relationship with God, even if it addresses some very fundamental issues. Uh, This book in particular would have essentially have been the uh, pebble that started the avalanche, so to speak, as far as taking my walk with God seriously enough to apply it in practical ways, and the ongoing consequences of that is what you see before you. And I, of course, want to encourage you to take the time to do so in your own lives as well. Uh, The book is titled Never Surrender, by Lieutenant General William G. Boykin. Uh, William G. Boykin, for those of you who don't know, has quite a resume under his belt. Obviously, as a general, he has served in the military. He was one of the founding members of the Special Operations Unit Delta Force, and uh, he's probably most well-known for being second in command of the incident that the movie Black Hawk Down was based off of, the intervention the United States attempted during the presidencies of George Bush Sr. and later Bill Clinton in order to stop the systemic, uh, systemic rather, genocide of the uh, Ethiopian people under Muslim occupation. It is still a hot spot to this day, being 50% Christian and 50% Muslim. The Muslims, of course, are constantly performing aggressive attacks on their Christian citizens. Same is true in Sudan, but not to the same degree of population. Uh, Noting Boykin's, of course, entry into the military and going through his testimony, essentially, him sorting out some very important questions about his relationship with God, it was read during a time in my life, and for those of you listening, this might motivate you to read it as well, but a time in my life where I thought the trajectory of God's calling for my life was towards the military. So I was compiling as many books as I could of the sort of mental preparation I'd want to go through if I were to pursue some sort of career in the military, and in particular infantry. 
what was interesting, of course, apart from the fact God had other plans for my life and intervened quite dramatically, is that the time wasn't wasted. And while he does go through his time in boot camp, his time in special operations, qualifying training, and of course him setting records in his training, the emphasis and push of the book, without spoiling anything for you all, is understanding just how far this man mentally could be pushed and then narrating essentially the time in his life where that was surpassed the amount of emotional physical and just overall spiritual trauma that he was enduring and how god saw him through all of it without again giving too much away the most prominent and impactful section of the book that meant something to me as far as things were concerned was at the events in mogadishu itself when they were bringing in soldiers by the wagonful who were horrifically wounded and, of course, fighting in a battle that they had essentially no long-term benefit of ultimately fighting for. It was his own Vietnam in ways, and him essentially coming face-to-face with the problem of evil. If these sort of things are permitted to happen and there's a good God, why would God allow these things to happen? If he's all-powerful, then he should be able to stop these things from happening. If he's all good, he would want to stop these sort of things from happening. And in the face of such horrific evil, he concluded very briefly, (laughs) there is no God. And God met him at that point in his life, his breaking point, and spoke to him something that continues to motivate his life to this day. And that is, if there is no God, there is no hope. This is something that C.S. Lewis has worked through in his own intellectual way. This is something that Peter Martin and myself have worked through in our own ways personally. But the story of Never Surrender is Lieutenant General William G. Boykin's journey in resolving that very issue and how God has ultimately met him where he's at physically, emotionally, and spiritually and getting him to the point, like in his training, of that breaking point as far as how much he could take and then seeing him go past that, not surrendering to the trauma, not surrendering to the despair, but moving past it, and as a result, being an example of God's glory and, of course, still serving him faithfully to this day. He is retired from the military now and is currently the executive vice president of FRC Action, which is also a resource I would recommend to all of you if you're interested in political action and being properly informed in the United States, not just knowing what's wrong, but how to properly address these sort of things in ways that matter. He is, of course, still very much proactive in that scene. Uh, He is a guest speaker at many different Christian apologetics ministries and churches, and I highly recommend you find ways online to see him speak as well summarizing his testimony. But for those of you listening, if you want that sort of military perspective, that sort of, well, a military general's mindset of being pushed to that point and then still being able to move past it, living in this world, you don't have to be in Eastern Africa to see the darker and uglier side of life. And knowing all that this world is and will continue to throw at the Christian church, I think it's a fantastic, a very real, and a very raw, but also a very straight and to the facts, bare bones, Mm -hmm. you know, militaristic summation of the sort of things that we need to reconcile in our own lives and how he was able to deal with these things 
on his own, how the Holy Spirit equipped and guided him in his own way, and of course, not just the events at Mogadishu, but other things. Uh, the fact that he has use of one of his arms today, again, I won't spoil it for you, but uh, wasn't the last time he dealt with physical trauma. Uh, God has been glorified in his life in many ways, and I recommend you read his testimony. And in noting that point, uh, once again, the book is Never Surrender by William G. Boykin, Lieutenant General, retired William G. Boykin. And for those of you who would be ministered to, I would say that you'd be joining a large crowd, of which I am one. Very cool. Have you read that book, Peter? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. When, um, when you mentioned that this was going to be the book you guys would be talking about, I assume that that was coming from you, <laughs> being a... Um, Former Marine or retired Marine or Mar- never a former Marine. <laughs> yeah. To say right, I know. What is the correct way of saying that? I don't care. You don't care. <laughs> I'm not in the Marines anymore. I know you don't. I'm yeah. a dirty civilian. I don't you were a Marine. Yeah, yeah I was were, a Marine. Deployed yeah. and all. Yeah. Much like the good general. Yeah. But I'm not going to tell him that. I'll the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. Well, very good. Thank you for sharing that, Sean. And um, um, again, we more than welcome to grab a copy of that book wherever you find your books and buy your books. And it sounds like it's a very interesting read for sure. Um, we have some questions. Uh, left over from yesterday, um, and Valerie and Zach, you restated them just now. Thanks for doing that. I mentioned that before. That's the best way to get your question to the top of the list here. So um, Valerie was asking, we had a, a question yesterday about um, defending yourself in your home. Say you have an intruder. Um, is it biblical to protect your family, even kill in, you know, for the sake of that, that kind of thing? I think following from, on from that, Valerie was asking, uh, with culture changing, does it matter if it's um, a woman that can fight and the man uh, being weak, um, the woman fighting for the man, or is scripture very strict, that there are differences in men and women? Um, Is it wrong if parents and children and husband and wives kind of change roles? Um, And even in workplaces, she sees a lot changing these days where employees are challenging their employer and there's a lot more kind of rights and things you can say and do and there's People a difference between rights and, and being ostentatious and rejecting authority. Right. Um, real quick aside before we get into the biblical aspect of this, something that really entertained me as far as history is concerned, I don't know if you're familiar with the history of the Greeks and Sparta. I know the movie 300 kind of popularized it, but it wasn't always slow motion and you know, uh, mm-hmm. combat scenes and stuff. The way they structured their culture was really entertaining to me, not just because they were a militaristic and eugenics pro-society, but there was one thing that I found amusing about them is that when it came to, obviously, men and women's roles in that culture, and this is the crux of the question, if culture changes, then does right. social dynamics and morality change? And what was interesting was in this particular region of Greece, ancient Greece, mm. the Spartans had interesting family roles. They understood that women had babies. They understood that men were physically stronger, generally, than women. So there was an expectation of men to, of course, be a part of the military. And when the leader of Sparta would go out and conquer more areas, the men would be the ones at home or out, and the women would be the ones at home. Mm. The men's military training, according to the historians we have, Herodotus being the primary one, stated that the training for men was around nine years old, but the military training for women was around 13. Mm. Now, that was unheard of, because in most cultures you wouldn't think of women being trained for military purposes, but that was actually intentional, because while the men are away, you assume Sparta is then vulnerable Mm. because its armies are out. 
and that wasn't the case. The women were just as trained as the men. Mm. The only reason their military training came later is because in that earlier period, they were given the opportunity to learn things other than the military before civil defense. Mm. They would be the ones protecting their children. They would be the ones defending their borders. They were just as capable, much like the Norse cultures, where they had shield maidens and the Askir and so forth. Mm. Uh, it's not necessarily a blanket statement. Women can't defend their homes and families. Many cultures recognize the capacity that if you have two arms and adrenaline, <laughs> you can do <laughs> horrific things for the right reasons and yeah. in the right situations or in the wrong situations. But when it comes to the biblical question of, is it okay for such and such to do this? And then give the example of, I see in TV and movies. This is yeah. something that I try to take the time to address often in our student ministry as well. We play a game, this was encouraged by an internet apologist, but it's called Spot the Lie, where you see portrayed in fictional and fantasy settings that it's actually a good thing, that there are no consequences and sometimes even benefits to the sort of things that society and also, by extension, the Bible have regularly condemned and saying that's not the way you want to go. But if I determine reality on the basis of something fictional, that's a problem because that's not actually reality. And we need to be sensitive to that because in popular culture and entertainment, do I determine something as right or do I use the Bible as my metric in saying that's true and that's not? Now, if you're in a situation where you can defend your family or you're in a marital situation where you're more apt to defend your family, it's not A, an excuse for your husband to be a coward, that's the first point, but B, it's also not a note of shame if the mother wants to more physically protect her children while a husband would be more offensive in neutralizing the threat. We need to make sure that this narrative isn't saying because a man has to do something positive in this situation or ought to a moral term, do something in the situation that's positive. The fact the woman isn't generally doing them is a condemnation of her, a demeaning of her, or saying because you have a different role in a family, that somehow makes you other than or lesser, whether it's the man or the woman, whether the man isn't home and the woman has to defend her family. Hey, the great equalizer is getting a gun. The point being made is this when we're talking about or talking to people about issues, if the point of comparison, the illustration of the fact in point, the fact in point would be what? Is it always wrong for a woman to do roles generally assumed to be that of a man? The illustration, TVs and movies portray them as it could be a good thing if the woman would do this rather than the men. Well, now we're framing society on the basis of those shows' writers, which may or may not be accurately reflecting reality. What we need to do is ask what actually reflects reality. What is our standard and what should we be doing in these situations? And the statement is and always will be walking in love. A priority that we set yesterday, of course, was that if we have the chance to live at peace among each other, mm -hmm. as much as depends on you, live peace among all men. Some people don't give us that option. If you're in a situation where you can defend your family, it's not a matter of, well, I'm a strong, independent woman, and I'm going to defend the family, and no man can tell me who I can and can't fight. Right. If he's a man, it doesn't matter if he's smaller than you. That was the point we made yesterday. He's going to want to protect your well-being, and I think you would be just as much in favor of that. But the point being made is this, don't let TV, movies, entertainment be your authority or set the narrative because, as Peter, you're writing a book on this, 
It's inspiring. It's beautiful to you to see a woman in a position of power and authority and strength, even over a man, that that somehow makes it true. Because in Genesis chapter 3, what was one of the hallmarks of the fall of the woman's relationship with man, that there would be a desire to usurp and abuse one another. If you want a positive relationship, don't use the fall of man as your metric for progress in society. That'd be my opinion. Uh, Peter, anything you'd want to say in addition to or apart from what's been said, maybe even to correct? Uh, Yeah, so we have to understand that there is a spiritual component as to why these particular things exist. So when we talk about gender roles, it's like, why do gender roles exist? There's a practical reason as to why the gender roles exist, and Sean alluded to it a little bit earlier, that even cultures that deny the existence of the true and living God, the one that we serve and served different paganistic deities, they developed gender roles not to oppress women. So the modern day view is that gender roles were de- were basically produced by patriarchal men who wanted to oppress women and wanted to get their way. The fact of the matter is that the gender roles were developed because they worked, right? In other words, people recognized, wow, men and women have different capacities. As Sean said, a lot of these are generalizations, but they do still have importance, right? It is important that generally men are stronger than women, and it is important that women have a role that can only be theirs, and that would be motherhood. And without the role of mothers within a society, the society collapses, right? And uh, I've talked about this numerous times in various sermons, but there's a lot of literature out right now that shows that the role of a mother doesn't actually end when the baby leaves the womb, that the first couple months of maternal care, uh, especially, uh, the first two or three months of maternal care, especially for an infant, is so important that if you deprive a child of that, it actually has effects that will stay with them the rest of their life. It's, it's really radical, the studies that they've done. And uh, sometimes it's not even the woman's fault. So for instance, if a child is born prematurely, and has to spend the first couple months in the NICU, they found that even those children are negatively affected by that deprivation of maternal care. So <clears throat> maternal care and nurturing for children, especially children under the age of five, is an indispensable resource. You cannot have a child be deprived of that and expect them to grow up in a societal way that they're going to be functional. Because of that, most societies recognize how important that role was and realized I was in the military it's not very conducive to family life. You know, when you're in the military, not only do you have to actually deploy, you have to actually go fight, but you have to train a lot. And therefore you're going to be away from your family for long periods of time. A child can function without a father figure for that amount of time in their childhood. It's not good for them, but they can. Being deprived of the mother is much more detrimental to the upbringing of a child. And so most societies structured themselves in a way where the mothers could be home providing that important care for their homes and the men could be away fighting. Now, that's all in a non-biblical sense. We just understand that these ideas were developed for a specific reason. These weren't all a bunch of evil men who got together and decided to deprive women of rights. There was a reason and a function as to why societies developed in the way that they did. Now, for the Judeo-Christian civilization. Why did the Jews develop their society the way that they did? And why did the Christians develop the societies the way that we did? There was a theological component to it. So we recognize that while there is a, a benefit to divvying up gender roles in these particular ways, 
There is also a mandate from God in that the roles are reflective of God's nature. So when God creates man, you remember in Genesis, he creates Adam alone, and then he brings Eve out of Adam and then rejoins them together. And he says in Genesis 1 verse 27, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. What that means is that the masculine component of mankind and the feminine component of mankind make up two parts or two halves or two sides of God's divine nature. So it's not just one. It's not just that the masculine is reflective of God's nature. It's the masculine and the feminine. And therefore, mankind cannot appropriately reflect God's glory unless the gender roles and the gender distinctions are recognized and glorifying Mm. to God. So when you look at the character of women, what are women predominantly better at than men? They tend to be more emotionally intelligent. Therefore, they become more nurturing, more compassionate. They tend to be also more agreeable. So women tend to get along a lot better than men tend to get along, right? And I could go on and on and on. There there are a lot of components to femininity that are very, very important and naturally reflective of God. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes the distinction that women actually reflect the son, they reflect Jesus, and men reflect the father, they reflect Mm. God the father. So when you look at Jesus's role, not only do you see Jesus performing these integrative roles within society, that Jesus comes near to man. He is the part of the Trinity that comes near to man and gets to know us personally. Uh, therefore, he has high amounts of empathy. He's described as, a, as the good shepherd, right? He carries the sheep. He has a nurturing capacity to him. Uh, it says in Isaiah 53 that he not only dies for us, which is, again, what moms do, they literally give of their bodies to support the life of their children. There's a sacrificial role of their body. Jesus gives of his body so that we can have life. Right, and I could go on and on, right? There, there's a component of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that is reflected more clearly in the feminine than in the masculine. Uh, beyond that, the Holy Spirit also has an interesting reflective role of the feminine as well. So if you recall in Genesis, it says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the deep. I actually don't like that translation because the word in Hebrew, it's actually the word for brooding. Uh, not brooding as in being angry or upset, but brooding as in a mother hen brooding over her young, over her brood. Sustaining it, literally. Right, sustaining like literally sustaining it. So some people are like, what the heck is the Holy Spirit doing there? Well, that's what he's doing. He's actually sustaining and nurturing the creative work of God the Father and the, and the Word mm. in order to bring it into creative function, right? The, the eternal feminine is present there in that moment of creation, which is really radical. And then when you look at the father, what does the father do? Well, what are men better at? Men tend to be more decisive. They tend to be less agreeable, which means that they are more confrontational and direct. They tend to also have higher levels of aggression. Uh, they tend to be stronger predominant, uh, generally than women. Uh, and they tend to be a little bit more on the abstract side as opposed to the personal side. So in other words, most men are more thoughtful in the sense that they think about ideas where women are more interested in how those ideas affect relationships. Men are okay just sitting around pontificating about great theological thoughts Mm -hmm. that have no implication for day-to-day living. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's a frailty, but it's also a benefit that men have. Why does that matter? Well, God the Father is the head of the Son. He organizes and structures 
the Trinity in such a way to bring glory to God, right? So men tend to be the head of the wife, right? They tend to be the head of the created order of God. That's why the majority of societies and cultures have men in leadership roles as opposed to women. Once again, this is not because all of these cultures are just like, well, women are terrible and we're going to oppress them. It was because they recognize men have certain qualities that make them better leaders, not all the time. And that's why, and this always surprises me, people are like, oh, these, these evil oppressive cultures. Why is it that when women do raise themselves to prominence militarily or politically, they're celebrated in these very same cultures you say are patriarchal and oppressive? Case in point, Joan of Arc, right? This is, this is medieval Europe, right? This is, not, this is not your enlightened day. Why did people celebrate Joan of Arc? Is because they recognized, oh, this is really cool that she is feminine and she's actually bringing that into her role as being a leader, and that's yeah. really important and cool. Why or, is it that a third of the poetic Edis and Norse paganism are celebrating the exploits of the Valkyr? Why yeah. is it that the most prominent rulers in the northern realms are, of course, those women who remained celibate after the deaths of their husbands and went on raiding and pillaging in his name? Yeah, and even in a, a, one of the most sexist cultures that I can name, uh, Islam, uh, it was Aisha, right? <laughs> the tribe of Muhammad. 90% of what we know about him came right. from her. Came from her, and she was leading the battles of Muhammad into, I mean, the armies of Muhammad into battle after his death. Mm -hmm. So why is it that these, if they're so patriarchal and they're so evil and they think that women just are terrible in every single way, why are these women celebrated for taking on these roles in society that are traditionally given to men? And again, these are non-Christian cultures that we're citing right here. It's because everyone recognizes that the importance of women is not relegated simply to this traditional role, just as it's not, just as these same societies don't recognize in men that, oh, because you do this, these roles, you have no role in rearing the children. That's mm. not true. It's never been true. It's just our modern society has basically looked back at history and just condemned it because we're like, these people are ignorant, they're foolish, and they're patriarchal, and we're just condemning them outright the without. only virtue is in victimizing yourself exactly. the only reason i have this role is because i can't have those roles instead of me having this role as an honor and serves a purpose right mm -hmm. and it's very interesting that uh you know modern day psychologists you know whatever you think about the tradition of psychology uh they've actually done studies in the most liberated countries on earth which would be the uh the finnish cultures right finland and sweden and uh places in that area right and in these areas what they found is that women, when you take off all societal constraints and you allow women and men to do whatever they want, women dominate nursing and teaching occupations and men dominate more of mm -hmm. the leadership positions and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not societal imposition. That is people doing what they want to do, right? Mm -hmm. When you take off the societal constraints, people will naturally gravitate towards what they're good at, what they're competent at and what they like to do. And so women are going to naturally gravitate there and men are naturally going to gravitate there. Now about one in five women is not going to do that, right? About one in five women is going to be more masculine and about one in five men are going to be more feminine. That's okay, right? There's there's room for all. Like I said, some no guys one, like that. Yeah, in, <laughs> in the Bible, Deborah is not condemned for being more masculine. She's clearly a more masculine woman. She leads the armies of God with Barak in the book of Judges. She's not condemned for that. She's celebrated for that. Mm -hmm. Barak was um, condemned. Right. Barak <laughs> was condemned because, you know, you know, but, but you know, like you have, you have guys. And then there are also guys in the Bible that are more traditionally feminine. You have guys like, uh, for instance, 
Jacob, he preferred the company of his mom to his dad. You know, he hung out in the tents and learned how to cook, right? He, was, and he wasn't totally a, a girly man, but, you know, he did have a more feminine bend to him, and he celebrated. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and David, David also had a, a highly feminine bend to his nature. He was kind of this interesting juxtaposition where he was incredibly masculine in the fact that he was a warrior, but he also wept openly in front of people. He wrote a lot of music. He was a, he was a poet. He was a harpist. Uh, he was incredibly sensitive. We see that in his writings. We see that in the way he behaves. And he had a, a really, really passionate way of loving people as seen even in his relationship with Jonathan. So uh, it's like we don't look at these men and say that they're lesser because they kind of go against these uh, traditional roles. What we're saying is, is that the gender roles are for the spiritual purpose of representing components of God's nature to the world, which is what man is here to do. We are made in the image and likeness of God, which means that we have the role of reflecting his nature, reflecting the image of the invisible God to the visible created order. Mm. And men and women have different capacities that allow them to do that at different levels. So what I'm not okay, I'm okay with someone saying, well, there's flex here. There's, there's flexibility in how we understand gender roles. There's differences in, like I said, temperament, which, which might allow for women to take on more traditionally masculine roles and men to take on more traditionally feminine roles. I'm okay saying that. Mm -hmm. What I'm not okay saying is, therefore, let's throw them out. Let's yeah. throw out gender roles because they serve no purpose other than to alienate people. I think that is missing the whole point as to why God created these things and even why, like I said, societies who don't even know God created these same types of orders within their societies. Yeah. So for, you know, for a family, you know, married couple, they have kids, they decide the, the, the wife is going to continue in her career and the man's going to become a, you know, house husband. There isn't sin in that kind of setup, right? I mean, to me, my generation, that's yeah. still unusual. Right. You know, that's still, that's not the usual thing. Maybe, the, you know, younger generations, it's, it's kind of whatever these days. But, but there, isn't a, there isn't sin in, in them deciding, as long as it's not like Sean said, you know, I don't need to stay home. I, why should I give up my career, you know, a prideful... Um, you know, kind of bitter thing. Right. There isn't, there isn't anything biblically wrong with. Yeah. And, and there are times where that happens. There are times where, let's say, you know, a couple gets married and they're looking at their finances and let's say the wife happens to have a degree yeah. in which she makes, she has the potential to make a lot more money for the household and the man doesn't. And let's say again that the man's temperament is the more nurturing one and the woman's temperament is the more aggressive and assertive one. Yeah. Uh, in those circumstances, it's not wrong for a woman to take on, it's not sinful. Uh, just like, again, it wasn't sinful for Deborah to do it. It's not sinful for the woman in those circumstances to take on the role. But there's a recognition, right? I think both the husband and the wife have to have a recognition of this is not how it it, it was designed to be, right? God yeah. is making an allowance for our circumstances, but it's not how it, there's an ideal of femininity and there, there's an ideal of masculinity. Right. And we're going to try to meld into that. And as a marriage, marriage counselor, I'll tell you, it's one of the most difficult things that happens in a marriage, right? Some of the most difficult couples that I've ever counseled are ones where the gender roles are mismatched, right? So when the man is more nurturing and he's more emotionally intuitive and the woman is more assertive and aggressive, there is a huge issue in trying to reconcile those two points. Because mm. even though the woman is more masculine, I've never talked to any woman who's more masculine that doesn't have some level of resentment towards her husband for not being a man, quote unquote. Right. right. So the woman will start pushing him around because she's more aggressive. The husband will allow that to happen because he's more passive. 
And then the woman will denigrate him for being not a man. Yeah. And then the man will look at the woman and say, well, aren't you supposed to be emotive? Aren't you supposed to be compassionate and nurturing? You're cold. <laughs> you're, you're an ice queen. And then he starts to resent her for not having a, a, a compassionate side to her yeah. and sees her as being just, again, mean and cruel when maybe she's not. Right. So it's not that it's impossible to deal with that mismatch. I'm just saying that it's difficult because of how God created the dynamic. Uh, so it, overcoming it is tough. And, and if you're going to take on those different dynamics, remember that there's going to be something in you that's going to buck against that. Mm-hmm. There's going to be something in you as the woman that's going to look at your husband and maybe resent a little bit that he's not contributing to the home as much as you think he ought. And for the husband, you might resent your wife a little bit for not allowing you to, even if it makes more sense financially, uh, not allowing you to kind of pursue whatever goals and ends that you have for yourself career-wise. So, you know, be very careful. Just be cognizant of that. Those are things that can be overcome, but they're going to be present. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. And probably even things that first attracted you to that person. Yeah. You know, that the man was emotionally intelligent and sensitive and those kind of things. Right. And then they grow to resent that. And they're like, well, be a man. Yeah. <laughs> well, you liked me because I'm more sensitive. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. yeah it, absolutely. But that's good. Being aware, being aware of those things, that's really good to be aware of those those kind of roles. Well, great. Anything else, Sean, to, to add to that? No, we'll no. just summarize what's been said. There are examples in history and in different cultures of men, women, men and women having and fulfilling different roles. We don't determine exceptions by the rule. If we look biblically and note gender roles, it's not to oppress, but to give equal opportunity. Don't victimize yourself because you're given a opportunity that someone else has. And then ultimately, when it comes down to the purpose of gender roles, it should be to glorify God, right. not to diversify your portfolio. Yeah, yeah, very good. Great question, Valerie. Thank you for that. Thank you for hanging with us uh, from yesterday uh, with your question. hope that helps you out. Very interesting topic for sure. A uh, question from Zach. Uh, when standing before God on Judgment Day, uh, and I'm a teacher of God's Word, and I think I heard from God when I didn't, and I taught something that was wrong, mm-hmm. um, is what is that going to look like as far as judgment? Is it going to be a harsh uh, judgment? I think the verse that says, you know, not let yeah, many, let become, not many you teachers. become teachers because you will incur a stricter right. judgment. Yeah, there should always be a level of sobriety that we have before God in teaching his word. And even though you do stand saved before God, that's no excuse of saying, well, I'm, I was a false teacher all my life, but I'm covered by the grace of God. It's not, of course, dangling your salvation over you, but it's the fear of the Lord and the honor of his word that should go hand in hand. Yeah, so the, the passage in question is James 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle the whole body. So uh, the question is, is, is what's in view here? Final judgment or judgment within human confines? And I think that there is an adequate argument for both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there is uh, an argument in 2 Corinthians 5 as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as well as in the teachings of Jesus himself, when he talks about people being careful about how they teach, because if they put a stumbling block in front of one of the little ones, as he says, the spiritually immature, they're going to be better for them to tie a millstone around their neck and throw themselves into the sea. So it's, it's a pretty hardcore thing to say. So I think that there, as Sean said, I don't think it has salvation implications, meaning mm. that if I teach something incorrect and it stumbles or hurts someone, 
uh, as long as it's not heretical teaching, meaning if, if I'm teaching something actively that would lead someone away from God and into a false belief system, then either I'm a total liar and I don't believe that, in which case that's really malicious and evil and I don't know exactly where your priorities are, or you do believe it, and in which case you are a heretic as well. And you're not, you're not, really not saved. Sure Whatever you're not Jesus you're right? sharing <laughs> is not the authentic Jesus. Exactly. But yeah. if, you, if you say something that doesn't have eternal or salvation implications, that's just incorrect and it's said out of naivety or it's said out of ignorance or something like that, or you stumble over your words or you're not really thinking through the excesses of your particular doctrine before you teach it, um, and, and you stumble or you hurt someone, I believe that there is going to be an effect— it's not going to affect your salvation, but again, 2 Corinthians 5 does tell us that we will receive an account for things done in the body. So uh, I, I think that whatever rewards or whatever uh, accolades that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 are in effect when it comes to this type of teaching. We will be held to a stricter judgment when it comes to our faithfulness to God's word. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also God himself is going to hold us a higher standard in this realm as well. I, I heard one pastor teaching about his relationship with his wife, and I, th- I thought it was really interesting, where he said that you know he got into an argument with his wife, and you know she was being unreasonable, and so he was getting really upset about it, and God really spoke to him in that moment, saying like, yeah, she messed up, but you did too, and your job is to study and apply the word; hers isn't, right? So he yeah. was just like, oh wow, like you know, I'm that's literally what God has done in my life is to put me in a position of authority within the body of Christ. And I should be able to run my house well. So it, it's right, it's correct for me to receive a stricter judgment, even in the eyes of God on this plane, for that reason and purpose. Right. And then I could uh, abstract that out one step further and say it's not incorrect for other people to hold me to a higher standard uh, within this this life. Right? It's not it's not wrong for someone in the congregation if I lose my temper at them, something that they would more easily forgive if I was just some random guy, it's not wrong for them to say, well, you're a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> right? you, you should know better. It's not incorrect for them to say, and I shouldn't get all defensive and be like, well, I'm also a human being, and you know, you need to, well, okay. Yeah, I'm a sinner yeah, too. I'm a sinner too. You yeah. can leave a little grace here. You know? No, like my job is to, again, to read the, the word and to, to try to implement it to the best of my ability. That's my mm-hmm. job. So if I fail to do so, which I will, it's right for people to hold me to a higher standard and expect more of me. That's mm. that's not an incorrect or unjust thing for them to do. Yep. Yeah, makes sense. Great question. Very interesting. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate that. Hope that helps you out. Uh, we have a question from Yari. He was wondering if Cain and Abel were twins. Eve gave birth to Cain, and then after gave birth to Abel, were they twins? No. No, is that possible? No, they were no, not we twins. We Genesis 4, yeah. It yeah. we're told that Cain was the specific offspring of one interaction with his wife, while you fill in the basis, and then it notes in the same chapter at a later verse that there was a separate conception that bore Abel. Right. So no. <laughs> Take that question off the screen. Done with that one. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Yari, thank you for being a regular viewer, and hope that helps you out. Mm-hmm. Thank you, guys. Uh, question from Taylor. Um, which commandments, which commandments are Jesus talking about in Matthew five seventeen twenty, 20, 
um, when he said, do not think I've come to abolish the law um, or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What's... Whoever disobeys the least of these commandments is guilty of all. Yeah. Uh, the law and the prophets is a reference to the Old Testament. It's an entirety. The law, or literally Torah, is the first five books of the Bible, Moses' books. And then the prophets are those that were written as spokesmen of God following his same standard from that time onward. So when we're talking about the law and the prophets, in modern terms, it would be the Old Testament. Now, the commandments that governed Israel, the 632, I think, that composed them, uh, that's given to us in Exodus 20 through 24. Uh, Leviticus is a series of laws that the book's title pertaining to the Levites, Leviticus, that's what that means, uh, is addressing those who are in political office, basically, in Israel. Those who would be representing God in a legal, in a social, in a ceremonial sense, they would be arbiting Israel on the basis of the principles, the laws, and the ceremonies given to them in Leviticus. And of course, we get a revelation of God's character and some prophecies, as well as messianic allusions in that too. That's why we read it. Uh, but note, when Jesus is saying the least of these commandments, he's not saying those specific commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Deuteronomy 6 commandments. He, he's saying just that. Go to your Bible and look left. That's that's the commandments he was talking about. So, um, and we see this in the early church writings. Uh, and when I say early church, I'm talking about the, the biblical writings. Not, yeah. <laughs> uh, we see it also in the early church fathers, but uh, we see it very present within the book of Acts, within the book of Romans, within the book of Galatians, and that is, what is the role of Israel in the new work that God is doing? So, there was an implication within what Jesus was doing to suggest not only because he his message was starting to go out to Gentiles, uh, but also because Jesus was giving a more spiritual understanding of what the law was all about, right? They, they had kind of nailed it down into these specific, really practical ways, right? And that's what the, the Mishnah was, and that was what the Gemara was, these uh, rabbinic teachings about what the law really meant and how it's to be in, implemented, and Jesus was going against all that. And so someone could easily take that one step further and say, oh, okay, well, if Jesus is giving more of a spiritual understanding of what the law is, they can misinterpret that saying and say, okay, well, that, then that means that the law has no effect anymore, right? We could just kind of throw out all of the law, right? We could throw out Leviticus, we could throw out Exodus, we could throw out uh, even most of what the teachings of the prophets are and just go back to the purity of Eden you know, just keep that Genesis chapters one through two in mind and try to implement that in the best way that we can. And Jesus' point is you actually can't do that, right? I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to, to get rid of Israel. I actually came to fulfill the revelation that God gave to Israel. And then also when Gentiles start coming into the church, the same question is asked. is like, okay, well, we've come into the body of Christ. We're not of Jewish lineage. So does that mean that everything that pertained to the Jews doesn't pertain to us. We don't have to do any of these things. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and some argued like, well, maybe we should go out back to like the kind of covenant that God gave to Noah, that more generalized covenant before the circumcision, before God chose Abraham. And there was a lot of debate within the early church. And Paul has to write very strange. Paul, the, the main dude who talked to the Gentiles, had to be like, hey, you know, again, read Romans 9 through Romans uh, 11, and you'll see Paul's argument where he's like, don't get too ahead of yourself, kid. You know, don't think that God just gave oracles to his people and they're no big deal anymore. He's like, no, 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 the, Jew the Jews have a lot of advantage. There's a reason why God gave oracles to them. And the fact that their tradition has worked out these oracles in such a specific way over the course of hundreds of years 
is something to be paid attention to. That means that all the components that aren't applicable in the new covenant, things like we're not uh, held to festivals, we're not held to Sabbaths, we're not held to the sacrificial law anymore. You can't throw those parts of your Bible out because they have foreshadowing implications for why Jesus did what he did. And we also shouldn't throw them all the wisdom out that we gain from these mm. particular practices that God gave them, right? So we still have to pay attention to them. We still have to learn from them and we still have to apply them to Jesus. But then the other components of the law, which would be like the moral components of the law, we also have to pay attention to, even though we're not under the same kind of governance that Israel was, we still have to look at why God gave the people of Israel these particular laws and how we can best implement them within the nations that we're a part of, right? It doesn't mean we have to do a one-to-one -one transfer because we can't, but it does mean that we should learn from why God gave these particular commands to the people and how we can also implement them both personally and politically, collectively. And then obviously a big component of the, of the law is God helping his people understand just personal morality, right? You can't throw that out either. So some mm. modern day Christians are saying we need to un unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. And, you know, it's nothing new. It started very early on in the early church. Like I said, you could see it happening in the books that we have preserved for us in the New Testament. But even in the very early church, the early church fathers, starting with guys like Origen, who were just like, yeah, you know, the Old Testament didn't really matter. Let's kind of spiritualize the whole thing and then just move into the new thing that God's doing. That's very foolish. I think that it's led to, like, if you trace that mindset historically, it's led to some really, really bad stuff coming out of the church, including mm -hmm. the persecution of the Jews. Mm -hmm. So be very careful about that kind of mentality. It's wrong. That's what Jesus is warning about. Yep. He's not here to abolish the law. He is here to fulfill it. So mm -hmm. we need to understand his ministry and his teaching in that sense. Yeah, very good. Hope that helps you out, Taylor. Thanks so much for that question. A very good one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Mac D, a question from Mac D. Thanks for joining us, Mac. Good to see you. I can't really see you, but you know, it's a phrase, <laughs> manner of speaking. Um, what did Jesus mean when he said, no one knows the hour, only the Father, in Matthew 24, 36? Only the Father knows the hour right of, of his return. Yeah. I guess the, the problem arises, well, if Jesus was God and there's only one God, how can the Father know something the Son doesn't? And how does all that work? Yeah, and just to note, this is in the context of a Jehovah's Witness who is objecting to the deity of Christ mm. and uses this passage to explain oh. because Jesus had a limitation in knowledge, he forewent or he is excluded from the sort of things that only God could be. If Jesus right. isn't God, then he doesn't know all things. Jesus yeah. didn't know all things, therefore he isn't God. Yeah. Now, the, logical enough. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> problem, the only problem with the logic is even though the equations set up properly, are the premises true? Yeah. And the first premise, there were things that Jesus didn't know. Um, there's two ways to go about this, Mac, and the best, I think, way to more productively deal with the Jehovah's Witness is going to be, well, let's look at more passages rather than fewer. Let's not eisegete this passage and say, this is what it means, therefore there's the conclusion. Does the rest of Scripture does, say, a parallel passage in Mark 13 say the same thing that you're insisting on it, and does follow-up information after Jesus' resurrection note the sort of things that, of course, wouldn't be true of Jesus? Should I test my conclusion with more Scripture rather than less? Should I let Matthew 24 and my assumptions about it 
take priority over other passages. And then, real yeah. quick before you go on, uh, that, that's really important for a lot of these different passages because, you know, as Christians, we can't be so emphatic and say, like, there's no way you could possibly interpret this passage in this way. Well, if you isolate it, as Sean said, there is a certain level of ambiguity. So, for instance, when you look at Colossians chapter 1, mm-hmm. and Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn, uh, some Christians are like, well, that could never mean that Jesus was created first. Well, it could. There's a little bit of ambiguity there. If you only took that one sentence, if you kept going in the same sentence, as you realize you can't come to that conclusion. So it, it's okay in the argument to, to sell, tell your friend, okay, here's a passage that has a little bit of ambiguity. There, there are multiple different ways to interpret it, and fine. But let's, as Sean said, let's look at other passages to see which one does Scripture, which interpretation does Scripture more support? Right? Yeah, are there passages where Jesus is noted rightly as knowing all things? Like, for example, John 21, post-resurrection, where Jesus is told by the Apostle Peter, and not corrected, by the way, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Should we note in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 7, where addressing this very thing, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And notice this, what does Jesus say? It is not for you to know the times which the Father has placed in his own authority. That's Acts 1 and verse 7. Now, if I take that and compare it to my conclusion in Matthew 24, what do I conclude? Well, Acts certainly emphasizes the Father knows the day or the hour. Let's read it. No one knows that day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, in that knowledge, how is it applied later in the same context? Jesus states in his authority, his right to know. Now, the question is, if the Father has a right to know that day or hour, does that mean the knowledge is withheld from Jesus? It could. It could also mean what? The right to reveal that information. The Mm. Father will reveal it. The Son doesn't reveal it. Mm. The angels don't reveal it. The scriptures won't reveal it. It's going to remain imminent. That is one way of taking this. And again, you don't even have to touch the Greek. You can just stick to the English. But a Jehovah's Witness is going to try to dance around that issue and say, well, it says in the Greek to know means, you know, gnosis. It means to know intimately. Mm. So it's it's describing something absent from Jesus' idea. Well, we can talk about gnosis versus oida and all that jazz. But the, it, it's all Greek to me. The point being made is this. When we're talking about the complete witness of Scripture, more passages are going to do more favors than less. And if you can get your Jehovah's Witness friend to at least agree to those terms, then to go to other passages where it notes Jesus knowing all things, right. where it notes Jesus having divine traits that exclusively belong to God. And if I say, but this passage says that he could not know about one thing, well, I could say, well, there is hierarchy within the Trinity. I think that God could withhold or at least reserve the right for some things not to be known. You'd say, so he diminished his deity? No, I'd say, what? That when the Son became flesh, he set aside all knowledge, and as we read in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, he grew in wisdom and knowledge of the fear of God in men. But when we see him post-resurrection, restored, as he said in John chapter 16, to the glory that, or 17, excuse me, the glory he had with the Father from the beginning of the world, who does that sound like? Then I would have to say something that wasn't at work, not that something didn't exist, but something that wasn't at work during his physical incarnation 
could then be restored to him, and you see him talking differently in Acts chapter 1. So again, just to review, there's two routes of going at this. In the incarnation, Jesus withheld the knowledge from himself because he was man and reserved that right to the Father. Post-resurrection, that knowledge was restored to him, but he didn't reveal it. The second possibility, the one I tend to lean towards, is that Jesus doesn't say he doesn't know it. He's saying he doesn't have the right to reveal it. The Father has that in his own authority, and that depends on your handling of what it means to know. So more passages, not less, when it notes, and this is the argument, Jesus not knowing something, therefore he's not God. Study this, because it's going to come in handy not just with Jehovah's Witnesses, but with Muslims as well, because they don't believe that Jesus is God either, and they will use this material to challenge whether or not Jesus actually claimed to be God, and yet this seemingly being a denial of it. But if you take more than two minutes of research and more than one verse to prove the point, it actually ends up proving our case that Jesus did in fact become man rather than this man was not God. Mm-hmm. Very good. Great question. There's so many um, uh, so many questions we have when, when you kind of Think through, think through on like a human level. I mean, with this, I'm thinking there's there's things that I know. Um, even currently, there's some news that I know about a, a friends of mine that I know about it, but I won't share with anyone because it's for them to share in their time, you know. And as you shared about that, Sean, and explained it, it was like, yeah, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. You know that Jesus would know, but it's for the Father to reveal and to really know that, you know. And I've had that a lot, you know, people, friends who got pregnant. It's like, oh, don't tell anyone, but you know the name, you know, like okay, it's for yeah. you. You know, I have the same knowledge, but not the right to to share that. You know, and there's so many questions we've had like that, where it's like, if you just think about that on even a sort of a human, uh, now limited understand, it's like, well, that, you know, that that really makes that sense. So it's very good. Yeah, it doesn't just mean, oh, that's a good illustration, therefore it's true. More information led to the proper conclusion. That's what we want. Yeah, very good. Well, great. Uh, Mac, that was your question, right? Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. We've come to the end of our show for today <laughs> yes yesterday i finished the show like a minute early i was wasn't reading the clock right so i had to do some editing but today i believe i am right on track with just about 10 seconds left thank you for joining us we're back again tomorrow tomorrow's friday last day of, uh, of our reason for hope week here you can join the same time same places and we'll certainly hope we'll see you there thank you for your questions and for your your joining us god bless you guys see you then you've been listening to a reason for hope Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.